Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. This is Ideas on Craft, and I am here with Ipeme Neto, who is the founder and CEO of Wella Health in Nigeria. It's great to have you. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on the show. First of all, tell us about Wella Health. I came across your company on Twitter and you're trying to solve what I think is a very hard problem, a very needed problem to be solved. Tell us why you got interested in this. All right, thanks. I guess I'll talk a little bit about Wella Health and what it is that we do and I'll talk a bit about the history, how we got to where we are at. So Wella Health is currently building affordable health financing solutions for quality healthcare across Africa, and we're starting out in Nigeria. The flagship product that we've been promoting for the last few months is a malaria microinsurance product, where for a small amount, you can get access to quite high-quality malaria care. That's testing, treatment, and follow-up. We've recently expanded that now to include some cover for hospitalizations, where we provide cash back to people if they get hospitalized, and also cover for death. So if somebody passes away, they also get some cash, or their family gets cash. Alongside that, we've also added in some extra benefits around health screening, health education, access to saving for your health care, and also getting instant health loans when you go to a health facility. We do this via a network of healthcare providers. We've really tried to reduce the cost by leveraging community pharmacies so that a lot of the care that can be provided in a community pharmacy is done with using point-of-care tests, we call them. So a test that pharmacists can easily administer where you get an instant result so that we remove the cost of the doctor and the lab and it becomes much cheaper to deliver that care. So that's our model, right? So it's integrating into these providers, providing them with the knowledge and technology to make sure that quality of the care they provide is quite high and also that the cost is pretty low. That's what we do at Wella Health. And the underlying theme there is that the demand side of healthcare in Nigeria hasn't been solved. And a lot of people that are building businesses or startups in technology, in healthcare, a lot of times they build on the supply side. So they'll talk about you know, how do we get providers more drugs or pharmacies more drugs? How do we finance those people? How do we maybe make their care better? What tools can we give them? But I find that not a lot of people look at the side of the people that need the healthcare is how do those people pay for it? And currently, we pay about um, the last uh, report from the government showed that we spend about $7 billion out of pocket for healthcare. So overwhelmingly, people are just dipping their hands into their pockets when they are sick to pay for healthcare. The challenge with that is it's very expensive, right? So it's a problem that needs to be solved, but not a lot of people are doing it. And I wasn't doing it myself. I was building a lot of things on the supply side. Being a physician myself, I'm wanting to help my colleagues just provide better care. I was building a lot of solutions to help doctors, pharmacists, labs. But I kept coming up against this bottleneck. There was a central bottleneck when I spoke to everybody. And it was always that, well, I like this solution. It will make my care better make my work faster. But the challenge is that it's an extra cost. We are a business. We would, you know, charge people for using our software and processes. And they would say, you know, this thing's an extra cost. I can't absorb it. My margins are so thin. And I also can't pass it on to my customers because they don't have that much money. And this was a recurring theme. And I finally realized that, well, if you're going to solve healthcare, we got to some way or somehow help the patients to better afford healthcare. So that's when we switched to figuring out healthcare financing using technology and innovation to make it better and easier. Okay. It's an interesting problem. The demand side does not get enough attention, at least when we talk about healthcare issues in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. But how significant a barrier is income in your business model? 
Well, I mean, that is that is the barrier, right? Part of the reason why people pay out of pocket for their healthcare is that they don't have the money to do otherwise. And so the rational thing to do is to not spend anything on healthcare until you need it. So it's emergency healthcare, and then that becomes important. You cannot like you cannot move on or move past an emergency, otherwise you die. So then people will then pay out of pocket. So you optimize really for what is logical, that is waiting till you're quite sick and you have no choice but to pay for it. So it's logical and it makes sense on a micro level, but on a macro level, it's very inefficient. Mm. So the thing is, people definitely are making that logical decision because they don't have money. So I think underlying this, and I guess this is the ultimate problem for Nigeria, is how do we provide people with way more income so they have that disposable cash so that they can be a bit more strategic in the way they purchase healthcare and plan for their healthy expenditure. Because you're right, the challenge is yes, there isn't a lot of room for people to actually pay for healthcare in the way that they should pay for it. And I guess that's where we've come in in innovation, right? In messaging. So the way you approach people, the way you provide the solutions that you have, the way you make it just that bit easier to adopt and to use. So say, for example, some of the strategies that we do is integrating our services into other services so that people don't realize that they're actually paying for the insurance, but they are because it's integrated into something else. So those kinds of models where you can sort of hide the payment for an insurance plan really makes sense. They're difficult, but that's the way to go because people don't really have that income to pay for these things. That's the reality. If I understand you correctly, there has to be some kind of cross-subsidization for your model to really, really work well. No, not necessarily. I speak to distribution more so than cross-subsidization, right? We can talk deeper about the principles of insurance, which is, yes, you're right, that you you get a pool of funds from all these people contributing in, and then you now spread that pool across the people that have contributed in. Some people will use more than others, but everybody gets protected. But that's, I mean, that's a different conversation even. But just from a basic distribution, I think that's difficult, right? And being able to distribute in a way that it's integrated into something that people are willing to pay for already, already pay for, already use, then that just makes your life a lot easier. Because part of the challenge with insurance, again, is that you need numbers, right? It's a lot of averages. You need a lot of people to be subscribed so that then, regardless of how many people sort of claim, you know that you have a lot of people to absorb those claims as they come in. So really, I speak to distribution uh, more so, and that's important first, even before you talk of getting enough of a pool to cross-subsidize people. Okay, okay. As we know, a lot of Nigerian businesses or people doing businesses in Nigeria are in the so-called informal sector. Because mm-hmm. the formal sector, they kind of have an employer-employee insurance scheme going mm-hmm. on. And for your model, I'm thinking that you have to sign up a lot of people in the informal sector. Now, talking about take-up, how do you plan to reach people that are not digital natives, so to speak? Well, yes. And so that is the problem, right, that we have as an economy is that the most economic activity majorly happens in the informal sector, so-called. So you're right that the formal sector usually did have some kind of cover. It's often not optimal. That's another conversation to have. But there is some kind of a cover. So really where the innovation and where the work needs to go to is this informal side. Totally agree. Um, and the challenge always with the informal sector is how do you reach them? You know, how do you distribute this? How do you get to these people? Strategies that we've employed is really integrating into services that they use. So even though people are in the informal sector, they still use different services. Say it might be like a mobile money an agent for some type of agent banking. It might be like their local, they might have a bank account. Even though they're informal, they would bank still somewhere. They use cell phones. They do that, use that for business. So really 
all these companies that have a relationship with people in the informal sector are the partners that we work with and are looking to work with more and more so that we can reach the people in the informal sector to, for them to take it up. Regarding where we are at with uptake, we have a few thousand people coming on board. A lot of our work is in the long sales cycle with the businesses that we are working with. So that instead of just going direct to consumer, which we do, especially for the digital side, those people that are not you know, digital natives, not digital savvy, then it's integrating with the businesses that they have a relationship with so that we can provide services to them via that business. Now, that conversation usually takes a while. It's just a long sales cycle. We have a few of them closing and we should be able to sort of announce things soon in that area. But that's the way we feel we can actually reach the people that are in the informal side. Okay. Okay. Do you plan to cover more? Right now, you say you cover malaria. Do you plan to cover more expensive, more complicated kind of procedures? And if yes, what model will make that affordable for you and your customers as well? Yes. I mean, the goal is to cover as much as we can. The reality, though, is that when you start to get sort of more complex and complicated things, it just becomes more expensive. So part of our value proposition actually is that we provide you with the access to the right health knowledge, health screening interventions so that we prevent the need for you to go on to have a complex procedure. If you look at the numbers, the most likely complex thing that people would have to face is cardiovascular disease. So a heart attack or a stroke or something related to those. So we know that there are things that we can do to help prevent that. And so our focus then is for our customers, can we help you to prevent the need for you to have these expensive uh, procedures or diseases happen to you? So that's really where our focus is, because we know that if you have a heart attack, for example, treating that is going to be very expensive. And if you're paying, you know, 700 naira a month, that's a big stretch to make it happen. There's obviously also the side of government, right? And so you look across the country, there's all these state health insurance schemes that are coming together. And I think they hold some promise. But having said that, I mean, there are government schemes, I wouldn't hold my breath, right? But I think the place that government schemes can play in is in expensive procedures, because a lot of those procedures happen in government hospitals, and those government hospitals are subsidized by the government anyway. So the government schemes can take up that slack in expensive procedures. So my own thinking has evolved over the years around fair, the government plays a role in your basic illnesses. But is there scope for them to actually seed some more of that to say, you know, private sectors, micro insurance schemes, and then focus on the big things where the micro schemes really can't cover so that when you say have cancer, God forbid, there's a government scheme that you can just basically go into and get your treatment because you're a taxpayer. If you have a heart attack or a stroke, there's a government hospital you can go to that's super subsidized, you can really get care for. But then your sort of everyday, day-to-day affordable treatments, then that can be covered by a microinsurance scheme or something like that. So that's where I think there's potentially some evolution that can happen. But I would say I'm in the minority, and I probably think that way because it helps my business model, right? Um, (laughs) But I think the goal for us is really to cover as much as we can and then help people to prevent those expensive illnesses from happening. I like what you're doing because I'm of the belief that to solve a problem, you just have to create a market around the solution to that problem. But we've seen that the approach that has gained traction in healthcare issues in Africa, I think because of poverty, is to find cures, is to look for cures rather than prevention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now, for example, Do you think that that model, basically financed by international development aid agencies and uh, their partners, does it threaten having a thriving market 
in prevention care and insurance in Africa and Nigeria. I, I mean, for example, if Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation found a vaccine for malaria, what will happen to your business? Yeah, great question. So I'll answer the last question before I go to the broader idea around the question is that if Bill and Melinda Gates found a malaria vaccine, you still need a process to get that vaccine to people. Sure. Because the polio vaccine was around for a very, very long time, but still polio was a challenge up until a couple of years ago. So having the vaccine is one thing, right? The other thing is actually having financing for purchasing that vaccine and having the systems to deliver that vaccine to everybody that needs it, right? And so I think there's still a role to be played there. But I think sometimes people get bogged down in malaria products and think, oh, what happens? What happens if malaria goes? Malaria is really a vehicle for us. It's a vehicle for us to help people change their behavior from waiting till they get sick to pay for healthcare to prepaying for that healthcare. So malaria is really just that vehicle because what do people most pay for when they go to get healthcare? I'll tell you, a group called NY Polls in Abuja did a poll and they asked a thousand Nigerians, what is your most significant and worrying healthcare challenge? 81% of people said malaria. So from a behavioral change point of view, from a marketing point of view, from a grabbing people's attention point of view, if you're building a cheap and easy solution you want people to adopt, if you're not sort of looking at malaria, then you're kind of kidding yourself because that's the one problem people have the most. And malaria is not really malaria because a lot of times people say malaria, what they mean is, you know, I'm fine today and tomorrow I have a bit of a fever, I don't feel quite well. A lot of people that think they have malaria often don't have malaria, right? It's really just a the, the problems I have day to day or my most frequent healthcare problems is this episode where I feel unwell and have a fever. It could be a variety of things, right? So with our malaria care product, we say malaria care, but a lot of times people come and actually test negative <laughs> for malaria. And then we manage them with something different and they feel better and they're quite happy. So it's a name, right? What we're really treating is when you feel unwell with a fever and you're not quite yourself, let us test you for malaria and then manage all the other things that it could be. Because in there also, I don't know if I said this, we also have a telemedicine service where you can chat to a doctor, get advice, those kinds of things. So malaria is a vehicle. It's important to not get too bogged down on that because really what we're managing is people's illnesses when they just have them. And then looking at the, the market is quite big. So even with Bill and Melinda Gates, like, I mean, the billions of dollars they spend in Nigeria is really just a drop in the ocean for what we need, right? So I don't think they'll ever distort the market because it's just a big market. And in a sense, I think that the bottleneck is not so much donor funding, which is, again, a long conversation to have around that. I think the bottleneck still is disposable income because people will always optimize what is logical. And if you don't have a lot of money, what is logical is emergency care. But when we grow our income, then people can start to think of and look at prevention. Because, for example, a big part of prevention for heart disease, let's take that specific example, is hypertension, diagnosis, and management. Now, how many people will go get their blood pressure checked? Well, not a lot of people. Of those that do get their blood pressure checked, how many of them will go on to then be officially diagnosed with hypertension and get a prescription for drugs? Even less. Now, from those people that get a prescription for drugs, how many of them will take that drug religiously for the rest of their life? Because most times you have to take it for the rest of your life. Even less, right? And all those are a function of, I don't have the money. I mean, the amount of times that I've been in a pharmacy, and in fact, there's one particular story, I wrote about this actually a few months ago on Twitter, where this old man came into the pharmacy, I was in one of my customer's pharmacy, and he handed over a prescription to the, to the pharmacist. And I looked at the prescription, and there were three drugs, and it was apparent from those three drugs that this gentleman had heart failure, right? So heart failure is when your heart doesn't uh, work as efficiently as it should. 
And so the pharmacist took the prescription, tallied it up, and I think it was like 7,000 naira or something like that. Told the man, and the man just, you know, you could see the look on his face. Because he had just come from the general hospital. He clearly knew he needed those drugs, but he didn't have the money to pay for them. And so he takes his prescription back and says, ah, I'll send somebody later. And he left. He probably will not send somebody later because he has to find that money. And if he finds it for that month, will he find it for the next month? Will he find it for the next 12 months, for the next 40 months that he's take those drugs for? So I think the problem with prevention is not so much donor funding, but I think it's actually that people don't have the money to even start to look at these things, which is the argument for me then is this is where we come in because we can get ahead of you ever having heart failure. We can have a process and system where we can start to cover those things as people start to get them, as we have a bigger pool and just make healthcare, make prevention and treatment more affordable and just make people healthier. That's interesting. Let's move to COVID-19, of course. Now, yes, you can't yeah, talk healthcare I, without talking COVID at this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So where I want to sort of start with that, you treat a lot, your feed has been quite active. I don't know if that's, I just started following you, so I don't know if that's usual or it's a sign of the moment. No, it's um, certainly a sign of the moment. It waxes and wanes. Sometimes <laughs> I tweet a lot, sometimes I don't. <laughs> but there's a lot to tweet about right now. And people are people are listening. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I mean, I've been tweeting about healthcare for the last five years. And mm. over the last month, I'm getting consistently like a million, two million views every 28 days. I look at my analytics a lot. Whereas before, I was getting maybe 100,000, 200,000 if I'm lucky. So like, you know, us in healthcare, I think this is really the chance for us to really grab people's attention. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are scared and they want accurate information. Mm-hmm. Now, where I want to start briefly is that we see how public discourse matters, especially in the age of the social media and all the other forms of technology via which people consume information. Mm-hmm. But my impression, and I will admit this is my own observation, is that a lot of the public discourse, especially during this pandemic, has always been somewhat subpar, in my opinion. I, I, don't, know maybe because <laughs> a, <laughs> I don't know maybe because a lot of the expertise, the epidemiologists, the virologists, the people who should be out there talking to us are trapped either in the enemy or in one government agency or the other, and they don't have the time. But what is going on? Because the discourse space, if I can call it that, is not rich enough. And I feel that leaves a chasm for misinformation, misapplication of data, and all kinds of things. What are your thoughts? Well, yes, no, I mean, I I totally agree, which is one of the reasons why I've started to tweet a lot more, especially in relation to COVID. I think it's a multi-layered problem. The first is that doctors, us doctors are really not great at public engagement. That's the truth. And so, for example, recently I tweeted, I did a thread about understanding the nuances around rapid diagnostic tests for COVID-19. So another set of people I'll blame is the media. And I'll say why, I'll illustrate why with this story. Senegal recently was held up as, oh, you know, there's this test kit from Senegal they're doing these amazing things. Why is Nigeria not buying this Senegal kit? You know, everybody in this place are just stupid. What are you guys doing, right? And I think the media sensibly, and I don't, I mean, I want to say I don't blame the media, but actually I blame the media because the media, want, they want a good story, right? So, but they're not going to come and say, oh yeah, these test kits are $1. They're great, but actually they don't really do the job and they're not really in use yet. It's going to take like a few months. You know, that's not a great story to tell. They want to, you know, they want to make it nice for people to latch onto it. So they can be a bit misleading. So that's one side. 
But with that, say, Senegal thing, people were criticizing Nigeria. And then I had to really do a thread to take people around, you know, testing, like to understand what goes into testing because people don't really get it. So I did like a 20 tweet thread and it really just breaks down viruses, first of all, because people don't even know how viruses work. People don't know what antibodies are, what antigens are. So I really take people through immunology in a very, well, in an easy enough to understand way. It got about 700 retweets. So I think quite a lot of people understood and were giving feedback. But what I realized then is I made the knowledge accessible and people now had more tools to be able to then assess the information that they were getting. So I think doctors and specialists in this area, in Nigeria in particular, are not really great at public engagement, at using simple language to communicate, at breaking things down. The archetypal Nigerian doctor will use the biggest word he can find, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and almost be condescending when he wants to carry along, right? So I think that model is a challenge in this kind of a situation. And certainly using that thread, you know, I did a lot of images and and tried to break things down. People were a little bit more understanding and receptive of the idea that actually it's not that simple, you know, antigens, antibodies, you know, all those kinds of things. So certainly one thing is doctors are not great at um, engaging with the public and making things easy to and able to communicate with people. You now layer that on top of the fact, this is my second point, that the general education is not great for the average Nigerian, right? So again, going back to Twitter, I tweeted recently about, oh, Imagine people that largely, if you look at our general population, haven't even gone to like secondary school, but even say people that have gone to secondary school and sorry to say, even people that have gone to university haven't really had, you know, really great general knowledge and ability to critically assess things. So you have that sort of milieu where it's very difficult because people don't have the basic education. And so it just gets very, very difficult really to pass a message across. So, for example, when I'm trying to have a conversation around statistics with people a lot of people don't understand basic statistics right and so you're starting from behind you know you're not starting at zero you're starting at minus 10 so you almost have to school people on basic statistics before you now have a conversation about everything else so i think that really hampers us that that general basic education isn't great and certainly there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area i don't know how we're going to solve that but general basic education needs to go up for sure And then, of course, ego is the last thing. I think a lot of us have huge egos and it's very difficult for us to learn and admit we don't know things. That's interesting. Again, speaking on COVID, what's really going on? I want you to clarify a lot of things for us. We hear a lot about community transmission. What does that mean, by the way? Now, there's this talk of testing, whether we are testing enough or not testing enough. What's really going on in Kano? What pattern can we really tease out from the fatality rate we are seeing and the number of infections or whether the case count actually reflects ongoing transmission or not? So can you clarify a lot of these things for us? Sure, happy to. And first of all, I have to caveat this that I am not an expert in epidemiology or infectious Uh, diseases. (laughs) Absolutely. So that's one of the problems. People don't understand that. So, for example, one of the things I've railed against over the last month is this idea of ventilators. People like ventilators, ventilators. I'm like, guys, the amount of people that can operate a ventilator in this whole world is like minuscule. <laughs> <laughs> now, come to Nigeria, it's even less, right? Yeah. I personally have managed patients in an ICU. I am not even that comfortable managing a ventilator, right? So then people got very fixated on ventilators without actually understanding that not every doctor can work a ventilator. You know, so like those like that's that's basic knowledge even that's not really available. 
And so I do have to caveat this by saying I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an infectious disease doctor. So of course I have a lot of information and knowledge, but there are experts that know way more than me. Having said that, I think there's some sort of basic ideas and principles we can and things I can comment on the questions you've asked. Starting at what you said first around community transmission, I think Buhari himself a few weeks ago actually said there is community transmission. The challenge is that he didn't define what community transmission was, and not a lot of our doctors have been great at defining that on a they public don't. level. I mean, they just say community transmission in their press releases, and that's it. Yeah, totally agree. And again, going back to my point of that's the problem with doctors, that we're very bad at explaining things. We just use our jargon and expect everybody to follow along. So community transmission, right, it basically means that if we look at the first, the first case of COVID-19 in Nigeria was from somebody that traveled from outside Nigeria into Nigeria, right? Yeah. Because COVID-19 didn't originate in Nigeria. The only way it would have come was from somebody traveling from a different country into our country. What happened was that the first case obviously was somebody that traveled. And the next few cases were people that had either traveled recently, so they were in the UK or Europe or somewhere in Asia, perhaps. They'd returned and then they tested positive. So, you know, they clearly had a contact outside of Nigeria. And Mm -hmm. then the next level was people were now testing positive, who you could then trace directly to people that had come back. So if I was in London and then I came back, I tested positive, then you now test the people I had contact with, maybe in the airport or maybe at home, those people test positive, right? So then you can now say that those cases are still related to travel, right? Because I got it from traveling. The people that got it, got it because I traveled. Yeah. I think it makes sense so far. So now... Yeah. The phase we are in is that they are now finding people that are turning up positive that never traveled and never had any contact with anybody that traveled as far as they could see. Okay. Right? So it's, you know, somebody in Ekiti that's just like, I don't know, a liberal or whatever, and then shows up and they test positive, and you cannot directly trace and say, oh, they met this guy that traveled, or they met this guy that met this guy that traveled. There is no direct link that you can establish between that case and somewhere that traveled. And now when you have a number of those kinds of situations happening where you can't link it to a travel contact, it now means that what is happening is the virus is passing from people to people in the community, that is where we are living, without regard for whether they traveled or not. It's actually going from person to person in Nigeria. It's now in Nigeria. And that is significant because it means that there is now the potential for it to spread like wildfire. Because before, it was just people that traveled. So if you get to them early, you can contain those people, isolate them, and then you can protect the rest of the country. But now that it's basically out there, it means anybody can get it from anywhere. So that is community transmission. Okay. So so it makes sense now, and you can see the significance of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Kano, what's going on in Kano? I mean, I'm not suggesting you have any inside information, but... We are seeing some crazy numbers, 630 people died, and the best the press could come up with is mystery death. And I don't know, what's really going on? I think what's going on is that the chicken is coming home to roost. You know, if we are being honest with ourselves, and it's probably true for most of the country. I mean, Kano, I don't even know where to start. Let's let's talk of the deaths, for example. So you have these mysterious deaths, right? How you can have mysterious deaths without having a system for investigating those deaths, that's a problem. Yeah. 
how mm. you can have all these deaths happening and no even official way for you to say that this is 10% more than we expected, 50% more than we expect. You just had a lot of stories and conjecture. People say, oh, it's malaria, hypertension and diabetes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So like, first of all, we don't have that system for collecting data around deaths. Whereas if you look at other countries, they're very good at identifying who died and why they died. And so if you see a lot of our data around causes of death, a lot of it is just really guesstimates, extrapolations, those kinds of things. Whereas if you look at Western countries, they can actually even tell you up until the last person. That is because it is registered and recorded on a system. And a body, for example, is not released until that death is recorded. Because I've worked in these systems, and so I know these things. Whereas for us, we don't have that system at all, right? The next thing then, of course, is identity, right? That we don't know who, where, what. We have none of that. (laughs) So so it's a big challenge to start off with. So what I would have expected is that for these deaths, you actually go in and identify them. So there's talk of verbal autopsies now, which is what we have to do with. But ideally every one of those deaths should be tested. So speaking back to data and talk about case fatality rates, those kinds of things, I cannot trust our data because if they are telling me that, oh, we buried 200 people over the last two weeks in Kano, we didn't really test them. We just went and spoke and did this verbal autopsy and we think it's COVID-19. I mean, that's, so how many of them will you attribute to COVID-19? How are we sure how many people are dying or not dying? So from there, you can see that our data is just unreliable. We actually have no way to tell how many people will or are dying from COVID-19. So big, big challenges there. And so I think you layer those baseline challenges on a political system where we don't have accountability, right? So the leadership is disconnected from the people, right? And the politicians exist for themselves. And so it's in their own interest, for example, to suppress the number of cases so that it doesn't look bad on them politically. When, if you think about it, really, they need to be on top of those cases so that they can tell the people we're looking after you and when we come back to get your votes next time, you will vote for us because look how great we did when we looked after you. Our politicians play politics for the sake of politics, right? And so it is a very big challenge when you layer that on top of those data and identification challenges. It's a terrible political system where people aren't accountable and then you're not putting all the poor education, you know, poor nutrition, all those other things. And I think it's just a, it's a big, big mess. And I don't think that we've handled it very well, unfortunately. Outside, outside. Let me put you on the spot a little further. Now, lockdowns, where do you stand? What is the best case for what we are doing now, which the government is calling gradual easing? Is that the right thing to do? People talk about Sweden, which did not have a lockdown. And of course, at the other end of that scale are countries that went into full total lockdown. Where do you stand and what are the best cases for some of these response strategies? I I think it's a difficult situation. I wouldn't like to be in the shoes of the people that are making it. (laughs) You know, I mean, I see other people, they go mad and say all these things. And I just laugh because I've been in some difficult situations before in my life. And it's never black and white. It's never easy. You know, people are like, oh, you have to do this. You have to do that. <laughs> Bros, when you're in that shoe, <laughs> it's not easy, you know? <laughs> so first of all, I sympathize with people in that place. Again, which is why it's important that we put the right people in the right decision-making places because they need the right tools to make those decisions. And if we haven't created the right system and tools, it becomes very, very difficult. As regards lockdowns, <laughs> to be honest, I don't know is the honest answer. You, I mean, you can you could see the economic side. So 
certainly for a place like Europe and America, they have the fiscal room to carry on a lockdown for a very long time. America gave, what, $2 trillion to people. Canada gave everybody $2,000, you know, those kinds of things. So for them, you can see how the conversation is different. For us, uh, FIRS is asking businesses to pay tax early. (laughs) 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 You know, so that immediately colors your conversation, right? So I think it's a very difficult situation. I think the biggest thing that we missed out on with the lockdown is we didn't have the capacity to test as much as we should have tested. So I think that lockdown period was when we really should have been able to test a lot. But again, you know, chronic deficiencies and underinvestment in healthcare meant we couldn't. And so that, again, that chicken has come home to roost, is that you cannot start to launch things in the middle of a battle. You can't be planning for a battle in the middle of a battle. So I think we really missed that opportunity for ramping up testing, identifying people, isolating them, doing contact tracing during the lockdown so that we would curb community transmission and just make that lockdown work a little bit better. We did the lockdown. I don't think we maximized it because of the inefficiencies we had. We couldn't maximize it because those inefficiencies are chronic inefficiencies for the last 50, 60 years. So I don't think we could ever have actually gotten there. Which kind of leads me to the thought of, well, should we actually have had a lockdown if we were not able to actually maximize the benefit of that lockdown? Because what has happened with the lockdown then is we've reduced the economic activity. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs, have lost their jobs. A lot of, you know, a lot of bad things are happening as a result. So I think it's a hard one to actually judge. We'll probably be able to tell a few years after the fact when we look back. Even then, we may not be able to tell because we don't have the data. We will never know how many people died. Even job losses serve as an estimate. We really don't have this data. So I think the one lesson we can take away from this is we need to put in place strategies around collecting data so that we can make really good, informed decisions. One final thing before I let you get back to the rest of your day. I know we've talked about your business and how you're trying to solve the problem around the demand side in terms of healthcare provision. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, even on the supply side. I feel over a long time horizon, bringing prices down and service provision generally. I spoke to Ikea a couple of weeks ago and he raised some issues around personal responsibility, how doctors can improve customer care, how to make patients feel more satisfied and things like that. What are still the missing pieces that you can see from your experience on the supply side and what can we do to fix them over the long term in Nigeria? So I I think I agree, you know, there's still a lot of uh, gaps in the supply side. But my attitude is that it is difficult to extract efficiencies and improvement on the supply side if you don't have organized demand. So me as a provider, I can treat my patients however I want because I'm treating individual patients. You don't know how I treated the last person. You don't know how I'll treat the next person, right? So there's no real incentive for me to invest so much in the quality of the care or my customer service because everybody I meet is a new person to me, really. And knowing what human beings are like, we'll only do things that have repercussions, right? We need to be accountable somehow. Now, contrast that with if you had organized demand, if you had somebody that was buying that care in bulk, They can extract some efficiencies. So if I treat you poorly, I treat the next person poorly, and I treat the person after that poorly, and all of them go reports to one body, and that body comes back and says, you treat the next person bad, 
and not sending anybody to you. You can very quickly see how that provider is going to improve. So I think a lot of the supply side challenges that you alluded to are actually related to the fact that our demand is not organized. If we can organize demand in such a way that people can bulk, there's a bulk buyer of services or products, those bulk buyers can effect change and improvements in the service so that their own customers who are buying, who they're helping to organize their own demand actually gain benefit from. And we're seeing that, for example, with a malaria care product is that we demand a certain level of care and attention from our pharmacies. And if they don't give that, we kick them off the network. That is extra income that they can't have. And so my answer really is that, yes, there are a lot of gaps in the supply side, but actually improving the organizational aggregation of demand will start to help some of those gaps improve. And a lot of those gaps are around organizing that financing. You know, So if I, say, do hernia surgeries, I don't have a way, I'm a private provider that does hernia surgeries. I don't really have a way for predicting how much money I'll make from hernia surgeries. It just depends on who turns up, when they turn up, and how much they're willing to pay. Some of them will owe me. So because of that, instead of me to charge, say, 50,000 naira for hernia surgery, I'll charge 100,000 naira because now that I have you here, let me collect as much money as I can. Hmm. Whereas if I had a bulk buyer, the bulk buyer comes to me and says, if you look at a population of a million people, the prevalence or rather incidence of the need for hernia surgery repair is about you know 10%. So in a year, we'll get 100,000 hernias. So you, you will get 1,000 of that. Now, for that 1,000, I'm like, this is great. Instead of me to charge 100,000 naira, I'll charge 50,000 naira because I know that I will get 1,000 patients. So you can see how then that all goes into how I'll be able to buy things and plan my care and do all these things because I know that worst comes to worst, I will get a thousand patients from this bulk buyer. So again, this organizing of demand plays a huge role across the whole chain because providers really are in a very difficult place in that I find it difficult to invest in good care, quality care, because I don't know where the demand for that care is going to come from. So when it comes, I have to charge as much as possible. Hernia is actually a bad example because hernia care is actually not expensive. Let's use a better example of, say, heart attack care. When you have a heart attack, the best treatment is for a cardiologist to put a wire into your arteries, to your heart, and open it up. That is very expensive to set up. So if I run a private hospital, there is no incentive for me to do it because I can't guarantee who's going to come. Maybe one politician a month, you know, because they're the ones that have the money. Um, But it means I have to charge a politician a million naira, two million naira. Whereas if, again, they had this one guy that collected everybody's money, organized the demand, and then we know that every year there'll be 500 of these cases. And then I would just then amortize that cost around those 500 people, make it far more affordable, and everybody's happy. So I think a lot of the gaps actually in the supply side is because we're not able to organize the demand, which is why I'm working on the areas that I'm working on. Final question. The so-called brain drain. How significant the problem is it? I mean, you can talk about (laughs) Elaborate. Oh, no, it's, I mean, it's it's a disaster. Yeah, there's no other way to say it. It's it's a worsening disaster because more and more people are are leaving, like, by the day. And you can't blame them. It's, you know, it's a simple economic decision. I mean, they're getting 10 times more. The working environment is 100 times better. Everything, like, so it's a problem that is just getting worse and worse and worse. The government isn't providing the kind of support that you need. Even if you're in the private sector, these challenges I spoke about are there. You know, it's a big challenge. And in the last sort of two to three years, what has happened is 
what used to happen was you had like younger doctors leaving whereas your most senior doctors sort of they stuck around but over the last two to three years the senior doctors are starting to leave you know the people that are qualified orthopedic surgeons qualified endocrinologists i say these two because i know a couple of these people in these specialties that have left in the last two to three years so what you have now is you have less experienced doctors to train the younger doctors and to treat patients so the shortage is even more acute and it's going to be a huge disaster. It already is, but it's only going to worsen over time. Let me push back on that a bit. There's a theory by a couple of economists. I don't know how you feel about that. Hmm. Who say that actually the so-called brain drain, okay, mm-hmm. actually encourages a lot more people to go into that profession. That, oh, if you know as a doctor in Nigeria, I can always travel to Canada and go to the NHS in the UK, then I have the incentive as a 16-year-old to go to school and study medicine. So it's not really a brain drain. What do you say to that? Well, so that is true, except the market for medical doctors is not a free market. So that, that idea works in a free market. And I'll explain if you say apply that to something like developers, um, okay. that makes a lot of sense. So as developers make more money and become more prestigious and can you know travel the world, it encourages more people to become developers. What is the bottleneck for becoming a developer? It is basically just are you willing to learn to code, <laughs> right? Yeah. Can you go on a website and just spend the six months or one year that it takes for you to learn to code? All you need is a computer and internet, actually. And you have that, you can actually learn to code, right? Yeah. So in that instance, it makes a lot of sense. Free market, you can go learn to code. Anybody can learn to code. Everybody can do well. In medicine, that is not the case because the market for doctors or the creation of doctors is not a free market. It is very regulated and capped by the government. And it's very difficult for you to increase places for medical doctors. So you have, I think the biggest class in Nigeria is 200 or less. I forget, I was looking at a list recently. But the max... I mean, a class of doctors in a Nigerian medical school is, I think, about 200. So every year, there is a maximum of about 3,000 people that can be doctors. So now that free market doesn't apply because your supply side is very restricted, (laughs) you know. So even if everybody wants to be a doctor, only 3,000 can be doctors every year. So really, that theory, and I, I mean, I like it, but if we want it applicable, we need to actually liberalize and or democratize, if you like, the process of becoming a doctor. Now, the problem there, of course, is that there are quality concerns around how you create doctors, how you license them and how you control them. Should we relax that? That's a broader conversation to have. The other thing that maybe can and should happen, and I've advocated for this, is, okay, fine, we need our doctors to be of certain quality. As such, we need to tightly control how we train them. And because of that, then we'll only have 3,000 a year. That's fine. Can we then be better at identifying the things that we need to restrict to just doctors? So that because your doctors are very expensive, because there's a limited supply of them, you want them then to focus on the things that their knowledge and expertise is required because they're very expensive. So can you then strip away all the other things that they do that doesn't require them? This idea is called tax shifting and task sharing. What are the things that a doctor does that a nurse, for example, can do quite efficiently, that a pharmacist can do quite well? or that, you know, a health extension worker can do. And I think that's the reality that we're in, is that in Nigeria, we have to get to a place where the doctor is the last person you need. Like, you should never see a doctor until such time as you absolutely need one. 
For example, when you need that wire put into your heart, a doctor needs to do that. That's why you need them. But to diagnose you with hypertension, do you need a doctor for that? I would argue you don't. To prescribe you with your hypertension pills, do you need a doctor for that? I would argue that you don't. You probably need a nurse and a pharmacist and technology. I think is where the opportunity is for technology. To augment the skills and abilities of those lower skilled people to enable them to provide comparable care to what the doctor would provide. So then you free up that doctor resource to be able to do the things only a doctor can do. So I think the free market probably would apply in technology, certainly, and in opening up spaces for more nurses, more pharmacists, and more advanced training for those people. That's interesting. Thank you so much, Neto. It's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Again, untrapped.substack.com and also get notified about future episodes.